Hello and welcome back to the Replatform Podcast. It's myself, James. Paul is unable to join us. He's deep in the hills in Greece somewhere at the moment, having a very uh, well-deserved holiday. So today's episode is going to be another interesting one. Uh, we are Our topic is how a viral photo of a dress attracted more than 10 million tweets and exploded e-commerce sales for Roman Originals. So a bit of a mouthful, but a very interesting subject to talk about. We're joined by Ian Johnson, Head of E-commerce at Roman, and Brad Holsworth, who's the Head of Product at Markle Commerce, and we'll, they'll introduce themselves in just a minute. Let me just set the scene of what we're talking about. So first of all, we're going to talk about how Roman experienced a big sales surge as a result of a product image that went viral. And it's a very interesting story. Uh, and the event has even earned its own Wikipedia page. So that's e-commerce royalty, basically. Uh, and then we're going to look at how Roman has since um, moved to working with Remarkable, using their commerce platform to support their high growth, and why they still remain committed to that platform and technology stack. So two kind of uh, related topics in this episode. Today. So first, let's welcome to the podcast, Ian. How are you, sir? Hi, James. Thanks for having me. I'm good, thank you. Um, thanks for introducing me. I've been at Roman now for 10 years. Uh, three of those years have been head of e-commerce. Um, as I say, you've probably said everything that needs to be said. We're a ladies' wear retailer. Um, we have over 100 stores uh, across the, the country. Um, and we've got a new home now of roman.co.uk that we just launched in April. Uh, and things are going, going very well for us. Uh, yeah, good to be here. Wonderful. Glad to hear things are going well. And you're joining us from Birmingham today, I believe. That's correct. Yeah, sunny Birmingham. Um, fresh from rain. But yeah, no, it's nice enough. Excellent. Thank you very much. And yeah, glad you can join us. Looking forward to it. And uh, Brad, how about uh, a little intro for yourself and um, for Remarkable? Yeah, sure. Morning, James. Um, I'm joining from rainy Nottingham this morning. <laughs> so yeah, I'm Brad Holdsworth, um, Head of Product at Remarkable Commerce. And yeah, good to be here. Looking forward to chatting. Cool. So could you just, um, before we start, because we're going to start focusing on on uh, the dress uh, um, with, with it, could you just give us a little flavour? What, what is Remarkable? How would you position yourselves? Because e-commerce platforms can be many different things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair. So I'm responsible for product strategy um, and kind of marketing at Remarkable Commerce. Uh, we have a really kind of clear vision on trying to enable small to mid-sized retailers to have an equal opportunity with their larger competitors. So everything we do from the design of the platform to the design of our services is really focused on enabling those retailers to respond to customer expectations and their industry. So my background is in marketing. I've spent past few years um, at solution side at Remarkable, uh, but I've done agency side, I've done client side as well. Um, my client side experience is uh, I've been head of e-com for a education resources business. And I got a lot of hands-on experience with Salesforce and Magento. And I took a lot of those learnings for a pretty decent sized retailer. We were sort of 20, 25 mil a year. Took all that insight back to Remarkable. So I went and got my hands dirty and then I brought that kind of insight back. Um, and I now work on communicating our proposition and making sure that we're our technology is heading in the right direction, really. Um, yeah. So, the, I mean, the platform itself, I would say, is uh, endlessly customizable. I think it's our kind of key USP. Um, we really differentiate because uh, of that kind of customization, but also our agility as well. We'll be going for just over 20 years, uh, work with a huge amount of fashion retailers, mostly, um, or use our platform and also our wider technology stack as well 
Uh, and our platform is our proposition is quite unique in that we're not just a platform vendor. We're also the um, integrator and agency behind it exclusively. But we also have a wider technology stack, such as a warehouse management system, uh, native mobile app capabilities as well. So we're a bit of a software house in that regard. Um, so yeah, that's that's us in a nutshell. Okay, excellent. That's a nice position. And we'll come back into in some more of the platform details later. But first, let's start on the the event that accelerated your online brand awareness, Ian uh, Roman. So I, I I love this story. I remember it, and when me and Brad were talking about it, I then read back up on it, and I just I hadn't quite realised just how big the stats were on it. So can you let's start at the beginning? Like, what is the dress, and how did it happen? So the dress was, I suppose, it, it's a blue, effectively, everybody should know about it by now, but it's a blue and black dress. It was one of our staple occasion wear pieces for spring, summer 2015. Um, it was genuinely quite a nice dress. We really liked it. You know, we didn't have that many of them. Um, it was in stores. It was online. And what had happened was a, a customer had visited one of our stores um taking a picture to share with their to share with their uh, the, with their daughter for a particular wedding and it just happened to have bad lighting and then it was shared online what color is this dress etc cetera, etc cetera, and then it blew up absolutely went mad and at its best the dress was a, probably one of the first international memes like it tra- it was across the world everybody was talking about it it transcended languages, transcended barriers. It was translated and tweeted and, and just celebrities got into it. At its worst, or at its most honest, I should say, it's just a badly lit picture. But the, the difference of it is that it got everybody talking, it got everybody excited. It was a real defining moment in internet meme culture, but it was also a really defining mo- important moment for us at, uh, at Roman as well, because it really, as you say, it, it drove our expansion into new areas and within 12 months we started having a conversation with remarkable so it, it did make a, a big difference to everything that we were we were considering at the time and what was the key discussion from so my understanding was basically you said the light and the impact but different people perceived different colors and there was that question of what is the true color of this dress and and, and it sparked it sparked a bit of a conversation in it around how we perceive color that's right, yeah. So um, a lot of scientific publications got involved uh, at the end of the day to explain the, the differences, why some people perceive uh, the blue and black, why some people perceive the white and gold. And there was endless amounts of TED Talks and endless amounts of interviews that we had to take on that. Um, can't explain the science behind it myself, but it is, a, it is really interesting, really fascinating. Everybody at head office tended to see the blue and black. Um, probably because we sold it, but a lot of customers in store, a lot of customers who contacted us, yeah, white and gold seem to seem to have what a forty five percent chance that you would see the white and gold version instead of the blue and black version. So it was quite it was quite interesting. It was really interesting. So yeah, you get two colours in one. So it's brilliant. So it's different occasions. Um, so a question I've got on that is impact because. You know, people have talked over the years about you get these big blocks on social media, and it's very transient, uh, and then it's it's there, and then it's gone. Like it's, this, obviously, was quite uh, uh, pronounced. And you had those, you know, those roll-on things like you say, TED talks and interviews. What was the kind of short and long-term impact from an e-commerce point of view? From an e-commerce point of view, short-term impact was an awful lot of sessions. 
Uh, an awful lot of customer engagement. Um, not all of it uh, particularly good, but there was a lot of interest there. And it was single-handedly until that, well, until that point, it was our best e-commerce period. We had um, over 2 million visitors that week. We had, um, we generated, uh, I think it was 85% more revenue that week than we had the week before. Um, we sold out of that dress within minutes. We tried, we desperately tried to make more. And I think there's only one still left in the business somewhere. Um, but it was sold out. There was television coverage, an awful lot of brand awareness, an awful lot of radio interviews. And for the weeks after the fallout, it remained very much an important part of our day-to-day trading. So we, we obviously, we went out there with, we've got it, we've got the dress, et cetera. We, we raised some very uh, quick advertising campaigns. We didn't do any physical advertising because we felt that everybody was doing it for us anyway. But it became part of some of our, physical marketing within our orders, within our stores. We got some posters whipped up, et cetera. And it, it continued to drive traffic for a month, two months after the after the fact. So immediately the short-term impact was was it was nice. It was nice to see good numbers, but once it started to die off, it it obviously it fell back to something more reasonable. Um by the end of March, by the end start of um April, we were back to something that was a little bit more expected, which was good. Um, because it meant we stopped having absurd uh, bandwidth uh, bills. Um, and then from a more long-term perspective, we'd been a bricks and mortar retailer since the mid-90s. And it wasn't until 2008 we actually had a trading website. But we were still a predominantly a, a bricks and mortar retailer. The e-commerce at that point only took 5 to 10% of the revenue for the overall business. And within a day, that had gone to... 20%. And that was great. For that week, we were 20% of the business. And it was rapid. And it was very, very uh, e- Well, the company believed it was very easy to maintain those numbers. Of course, it, it transpired, but it particularly wasn't. But it showed what was possible. It showed us what was capable with the scalability of what we can do e-commerce. That wouldn't have happened if we'd only had stores, for example. It wouldn't have been able to scale to the level it did because we could distribute our orders via the online, you had people coming from the US, from the UAE, from China, India, all of the countries around the world were buying this dress and coming to our website and visiting us. And that's what really made the difference. Had we only had the physical stores, every every store might have had four or five sizes available. It wouldn't have had that impact and it wouldn't have spread quite as far as it did. So the biggest thing that we got out of it was the investment into our future as an e-commerce retailer. And I think that's the, the most important thing that happened from that was just this uh, sudden change in, in belief and structure from what the business would take going forward. Uh, that's the most important thing. Yeah, that's really interesting, actually, because I haven't worked with a lot of businesses that are traditional bricks and mortar, and they, there often can be a bit of reticence to really push the investment into online because it's still small and it's well it's small and it's not treated like a store it's treated like this separate thing so i mean that yeah that, i guess that's great from an e-commerce point of view for it to suddenly raise the stakes at a, at a board level um and you you touched on earlier about you know it was great and positive but there were also some issues and there always are when you suddenly get this rapid growth and interest what what were some of the key things that came out that were challenges and like how did you tackle them 
I mean, we we very quickly realised within the first 24 to 48 hours that we were kind of out of our depth with the amount of attention we were getting. Um, it was becoming difficult to manage and keep consistent. Um, it was also, as many retailers would be, you, you don't want to put your foot in it. You don't want to say something that gets misconstrued or, or unfortunately reaches um, a conclusion that wasn't intended. So we, we went out and we got some outside help. We got a PR consultant who came in and worked with us for a month or two um, to help us weather the storm and to guide us through it. Um, she was fantastic. She took on a lot of the hard questions. She dealt with a lot of the um, a lot of the uh, publicity. However, we still maintained a lot of the, uh, the reviews and whatnot. Short-term impact again. Uh, there were so many television uh, vans in the car park, we couldn't get orders in. Royal Mail couldn't get in to pick up orders. Oh, we couldn't wow. get trucks in. Um, they were queuing up around the block. Uh, we had fights on the stairs from journalists and television uh, production staff trying to get into the offices. Um, again, these, uh, not <laughs> nice problems to have, I guess, um, is, the, is the nice way of saying it. But what we found... Not so much an issue, but the dress was more about a concept than a product at the end of the day. And it got used by a lot of third parties that we had no control over to push their own beliefs and their own agendas. So you might have seen some of the more lighthearted ones. Lego did one. Um, the Tide tablets did another. Um, I think a lot, of, a lot of companies got involved in it. And they took the concept and they they wrapped it they wrapped it around their own product. But then a couple of charities got involved in it as well, and it was starting to blur the lines between well, what's Roman yeah. and what's not. And that's where we really took a step back at a stage and said, okay, this has ended now. We we don't have any more of this dress. It's nice to accept the traffic and people are excited about it and want to talk about it, but we want to step away from the elements that we don't have control over. And that was very difficult to say nobody gone through it before. You occasionally get the, um, back up until that point, you would occasionally have banter of social media and people bandwagon on different topics. But because this was such a wide reaching and international phenomenon, and it was an image more than it was a spoken phrase, it obviously it went across different languages and lots of people picked it up for lots of different reasons. So we, we found that the control of it was very difficult. Like anything that goes viral, there is no control. And I think there's more protection now than there is was back then because it, it got into the copyright realm and people are protected now. There's that whole uh, conversation around was BuzzFeed right to monetize it? Was the Telegraph right to monetize it? Was the BBC, Ellen DeGeneres, were they all right to monetize something that they hadn't created but because the buzz was so quick and went so fast nobody stopped to think and nobody stopped to really consider what had happened thankfully we never used or we tried to minimize the use of it as much as possible and we we did we did take a step back after a while and said it's draw a line it's done we don't have the product anymore it's okay but we're happy to still talk about its history and i think that's that's the that's the key difference. I think we, we're we happy that it's a vehicle for awareness. We're happy that people have used it. Uh, and we're happy that people are still talking about it. You know, it's, it's, it's a good thing. It's totally organic, can't be controlled, but that's yeah. it. I think that's a really important learning that you're sharing with people is 
is that for a business that hasn't gone through that, when it explodes globally and it has such a big PR angle, but it also has these other commercial implications, when you're not ready for it, that can be that can be really challenging and quite daunting. And and often it's about do you you can't plan for something if it if it just happens you know unexpectedly. But what you can do, I guess, is is have the right partners around that that who can help you you know work through that if it's not your core competency. That's right. Um, we weren't with Remarkable at the time, but we were with a, another a partner that ended up being sucked into the NetSuite monster. Um, but, you know, it's, um, they were able to scale at the time, but it wasn't, a, it wasn't, a, I'm not going to go into it. Those, those issues are past, but it was difficult. It was, it's difficult to scale. Our operations uh, weren't, were very manual back then. We didn't have a lot of, uh, we didn't have, we, to be fair, we didn't even have hand scanners. It was very much a pen and paper operation. And um, we couldn't handle the amount of interest that we had from that. Yeah. So, again, it was about scalability. We, we couldn't. Uh, uh, Server-wise, the bandwidth, it, it could handle it. But it was something that we didn't want to keep having to scale up and scale down. It was, yeah. it was a huge amount of traffic in one go. We couldn't easily push that lever up and then bring it back down again. It was an awful lot of contract terms and stuff. That was really yes. That reminds me of my old agency days when trying to negotiate, negotiate contracts on, on like excess bandwidth and how quickly you can scale up and down and minimising inefficiencies of having that extra bandwidth for months when you don't need it. Yeah, it's it's not fun. Elasticity is so important in, in environments. So, um, that, that leads us quite nicely onto the next question I've got, which is, I know that at the time of the dress you weren't working on Remarkable, but you've since built partnership with them. Like what drove... What drove that decision to, to move to that platform? You know, was that a, gro- a growth and scale thing, or were there other reasons that drove you into a partnership? Um, the, back in obviously back in 2015, we realised that e-commerce was going to be a big thing for us, and we needed to to make adjustments to that. Our current partner had, um, as I said, was uh, just being uh, repackaged. And a couple, of, a number of partners were leaving, so we we saw the wood for the trees, and we we had to make a decision. We looked around an awful lot of partners. We um, we didn't make any immediate decisions, much to remarkable chagrin. <laughs> you know, we we had to do our due diligence, and we wanted to be with someone that was agile and responsive as we were, and was going to be more of a, an, a more of an accessory to our team than anything else. We didn't want an agency. We didn't want to work with a partner that was going to build us on a separate platform. We wanted to be with someone that had built a dedicated platform that could be incredibly agile, be incredibly scalable, and had the kind of growth ambitions that we did. Um, It became a no-brainer after that point because there was also fashion retailers on the platform that made it an easier decision for us, and they were able to promise growth in the 12 to 24 month period where other people were promising growth in the four to five year period. And that's that was a big difference for us. We wanted to invest a lot of money very quickly. We wanted to grow and to scale and to build. We didn't want a slow burner. E-commerce didn't have the luxury of waiting. It needed to be fast and rapid. And I think that makes the biggest difference for us when, we, when we're talking about the it's a bespoke platform, completely customizable. There's no, you can't do that because somebody else hasn't done it. 
that doesn't exist. It's all it's 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 built around us, and that makes it the best for us. For us. Okay. Yeah, I'd I'd love to know what you learned from that process because it when you've gone from one one setup and you're moving to another one, even with the benefits you can realise, there's always challenges in that transition. Like, what what did you learn from that replatforming piece, and what advice could you give other e-commerce teams who are considering or going through this process? Um, it turned out we didn't know what was best, and we probably should have let Remarkable do more of it for us. Um, there was uh, we completely redesigned our front end. And it was an awful lot of work and it was a lot of late nights and painstaking looking over designs. And then when we finally transitioned over to Remarkable, it was live very quickly. It was between uh, March and July we managed to get live. Uh, and we were unhappy with the numbers that we were seeing for the first two months. And we said, look, guys, what have we done wrong? And they said, to be fair, these are all the changes we make. And a lot of those changes are still in place today. Um, we went quite... Uh, we went quite boutique style with the websites and we probably should have just listened to the experts of what they were telling us. We've grown and we've adapted from there. I mean, other challenges was just introducing a whole new culture to the environment. We'd always done development in-house. Um, so outsourcing that development, there's a lot of people that are thinking, well, what am I going to do now? But it's we didn't lose those people. Those people adapted and they've become project managers in that field so it, you know it's changed it's changed how we look at a project it's changed how we look at work and there's no throwaway pieces anymore there's not stuff being worked on for the sake of it everything has a place and everything has merit so losing the in-house development isn't a bad thing it's it's really it's really enabled us to do more than it had previously um other challenges operationally there's things that are different now. we had to go with different parties um historically being uh uh, with Metapack and then moving to uh, Mail uh, direct their um, their their third party uh, courier solution. Um, that's made a it's made a massive difference to our scalability. So change isn't a bad thing as long as you know what you're getting into. I think is the <laughs> is the main takeaway. Yeah, that's a very that's a very good point. Assessing what the what the impact is of, of anything before you you uh, decide to do it is very important. Um, last question up before we we kind of dive a bit more into remarkable with Brad is is it, what what's kind of the key learning thing that you took out of that whole process of of changing technology, implementing a new one? If you, if you could go back and wave your magic wand, what what was that key learning piece for you? The key learning piece, I think, is to something that they helped. With. Figure out, stop worrying about the problems you're having today. Worry about the problems you're going to have in two years because it'll be those problems that you're seeking to fix, not the more immediate problem is, oh, my conversion rate's pretty low. What do I do about it? That's not – that changes with the, the season. It changes with the weather. It changes with a lot of outlying factors. The things that you need to worry about, how am I going to scale my operations to adjust this for a 50% growth in revenue? You know, those things, <laughs> it's too late to worry about that when you're there. So worry about the things that are coming. Don't forget about the things that are concerning you at the moment, but do worry about the things that are going to happen in two years' time because that's where you want to be, not where you are now. So there'll be a lot of times where you're, where you're getting stressed and you're, you know, lots of sleepless nights because you, you, you're, thinking, uh, you're thinking about a particular problem that's bothering you today. But bigger picture, it's not, a, it's not the... The main problem it's going to be what you're worrying about in three years that is the long-term project and is something that you can easily manage and digest 
over a longer period of time. So worry about those problems. The, the day-to-day, don't worry about it. That's what that's probably more of a personal thing, business-wise. Um, just make sure you've got all your eggs in a row. Make sure you know what you're transferring over and you should be okay. Plan for growth, you know, if you don't. What's the old idiom? You know, if those who plan to uh, fail to plan, plan to fail. Just have a have a nice roadmap in place. Have a plan. I think that's really good advice because a lot of the time in the projects I work in, it's helping people through the process of transition. And I often say to them is, you've got to think about where you want to be in three to five years, not where you are now. And yes, yeah, it's that thing exactly what you said. You can don't fixate on all the little issues you've got now because you lose sight of. Oh God, we forgot to put that strategic capability in our platform. Oh dear. And the operational bit you said is so important. If you don't have the right resource, it doesn't matter how good the technology is because you can't use it. So yeah, very, very good advice. Thank you. Um, so let's let's um let's switch over and have a, a bit of a dive into, into the Raracle platform, and then we'll come back to you, Ian, if that's right, and talk a bit about where 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 the current challenges are, where you're going with Roman. Um so Brad. You talked uh, when you introduced yourself in Morocco, you said about agility. Mm-hmm. Now, I, 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 I love getting into these discussions because at the word agile gets used or gets abused so many ways. <laughs> I'd love to hear what, yeah, what, it gets what, smashed, doesn't it? Exactly. We're agile. Um, What's that I, mean? I'm not meaning that in any dismissive way, but I'd love you to be able to articulate for our, our listeners what do you really mean? And, and could you give an example of, of how that agility benefits a merchant? Yeah, sure. So um, I'd say. Our agility is special because we're not a a SaaS platform as such. We're kind of like a hybrid SaaS solution. So like Ian just said then, each of our clients have a tailored version of our platform, which means that um, although we have core services, which kind of interconnect and kind of tie all our clients together in certain ways, but generally speaking, all of our clients are almost entirely separated. So that means from an agile point of view that they are not tied to like a specific release schedule or anything like that. There's no um, kind of release uh, roadmap. Um, all of our clients are very independent, actually, in, in, in almost every way. And I think that's really important because a retailer should really be in control of their DevOps, I think, uh, and release on a schedule that works for them, whether that's you know, weekly, even daily. <laughs> I'm sure Ian can remember the kind of daily uh, hot fixes we were doing back in the, you know, five or six years ago, you know, and then as time goes on, that becomes weekly, bi-weekly, monthly, whatever schedule works for them, um, however however fast they want to be developing the platform. But yeah, agile to us means, um, yeah, clients are in control, I guess. And they are, uh, and for us, that means that the platform and their, their version of the platform can can go in whatever direction uh, they need it to. That's 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 how I would explain agility for us. Yeah, that's a really nice explanation. So that leads me nicely onto my, a kind of related question, which is architecturally. So you yeah. said you like hybrid SaaS. How does that work? Because one of the big fears people have on truly customized platforms, and I've seen this when people really turn a Magento into a Frankenstein. Yeah, it's not Magento's fault, but people have just customized the crap out of it, and it makes upgrade paths really difficult for core releases. So, how, do you, do you then have a core uh, level of application services where those upgrades uh, can be rolled out across the clients, and then you have the customization on top of that? So, how does that work? Yeah, basically, yeah. So, um, firstly, there's a really nice, clear diagram on our website, <laughs> which I would go and recommend having a look at because that's 
does a good job of explaining our architecture. But um, our platform is essentially a suite of microservice modules, always has been way before that was kind of, you know, the common terminology. Um, and there's a, a library of APIs that's used in a in a big way. Um, and all those, all those microservices in the admin are that all our tech, we don't white label any technology that a lot of common platforms do. Um, so there's everything from, you know, a, a CMS page builders and a, a strong PIM search and merch kind of capabilities. And I guess because they are microservices and very modular, it means that all of our clients can choose what to use and what to swap out. So there's some technology like search and merch that people like Roman will say, actually we want to use a third party and that's completely fine. Um, but that level of modularity from a, from a microservices point of view means that we can be really agile um, in the platform. And then to Ian's point about the kind of front end piece, none of our clients use a, a separate front end. They all use our headless front end and they can do if they wish to, but um, yeah, none of them do that. I think we're, we're, we are particularly strong with front end capabilities. So all of our storefronts are, um, well, firstly, they're built in a headless fashion. So connecting to the back end is really strong. Um, and the agile piece comes into that as well. Um, but yeah, the, the front ends also kind of allow for retailers to be super custom. So if Roman want a particular new function or new feature or new layout design, there's no restriction or limitation to what the platform can offer and do. And that's that really comes into its own when you think about headless and um, that API kind of capability. And you said headless. Can we de- let's break that down? What 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 is your front end setup like? Are you using a specific framework? Like, if you storefront, have you built yeah. your own proprietary one? So yeah, so we use. Um, we're moving into a React world, and I think that's really exciting. Um, from a React point of view, obviously that's a really modern JS framework and library. Um, it is extremely flexible and has a a composable kind of approach to it. So especially over the past 12 months, we've been starting to move into that way and thinking about how do we um, how do we transition to be in a React front end. And the key, one of the key drivers for that for us is our approach to mobile. So like I mentioned before, we're starting to approach that native mobile app space. Um, and using a React framework enables that to be so much easier. So, and we're trying to now kind of think about how do we then ensure all of our front ends, all of our storefronts are using the same tech. Um, and headless means for us that our platform can move and scale and, and adapt as it needs to without the front end becoming really affected. And it can kind of be separated and do its own thing. So, in my opinion, we're almost creating two kind of departments in our in remarkable commerce where uh, we have this headless piece and then we have our microservice API kind of team almost. So that's the kind of direction that we're going in. Uh, yeah. Fantastic. And have you gone down a like PWA route? Um, that seems to be popular. A lot of people build out headless front ends or have you not yeah. gone down there yet? Yeah, we were proudly, we were the first, uh, we released the first e-commerce PWA in the UK, which is super exciting. Uh, many years ago, it was 20, 
16, maybe, even earlier, possibly. Maybe I'd say 20 years ago, and I was thinking, wow, that was an achievement. <laughs> no, 20, yeah, 20, <laughs> 2015, 2016. We, um, yeah, no, we did the first e-com PWA uh, in the UK, which was for another retailer. Um, and then, yeah, all, all of our front ends then became kind of PWA friendly. Um, mobile and especially kind of front end um uh, performance is incredibly important to us. You know, we we like to think that our front ends and our sites generally are super quick, and um, I'm sure Roman, uh, Roman can attest to how much time and effort we put into making sure performance is as best it can do for that time, uh, for that point in time. Um, yeah. Okay, excellent. And um, what, from a roadmap point of view, where are you focused? Because no one platform can be everything to every business. So. Are you focused now on enhancing core functionality or is it adding incremental functionality or both? A bit of both. Um, to be honest, our recent focus has just been on ensuring that clients stay agile, So, um, which means diverting all resources we have onto our client teams. And that's just because the past 12 months have been so incredibly busy for us and our clients. All of our clients have seen, most of our clients have seen really, really strong growth and, and that's starting to really come on as well now. So that's where our attention has been. Our clients just constantly wanting more functions and quicker delivery projects. So our service kind of element has really has really been the focus. Um, and then, yeah, from a roadmap point of view, uh, all of our clients, like, like I said, have their own front end. So many of them have their own admin version as well. Which means that almost like every client has their own roadmap. We don't. We're not like a SaaS solution with one central roadmap. We have many, many <laughs> projects and roadmaps going on at the same time. Um, the things that I'm getting excited about that we're, that we're really focusing on, obviously the the, the app side of it. So uh, that React framework and going into that native app space. That's that's exciting. Um, the the stuff that kind of exciting but not really that sexy is things like reporting functionality i think that gets overlooked a lot and not really talked about so reporting in other platforms um and that's one of the key that's one of the one of the big reasons that a lot of retailers come to us is because they have no visibility on how well they're actually doing or um what the problems are on you know in the in the data so we're, we're starting to focus on reporting um things like you know, looking at how do we identify gaps in product data, for example? Um, how do we pinpoint those kind of enrichment opportunities in product data or in category data? Um, and all the time, everything we do, we're always thinking about self-serving functionality. You know, gone are the days of, you know, come and ask your agency for everything you want to do. A platform has to be, uh, even, even enterprise-grade technology now has to be super super self-serve so what are the things we have to take a step back and think what are the things that our clients have asked for over the past six months that we should now be giving them as technology as functionality in their admin so things like a, a pop-up manager and designer um, things like a product rex kind of a carousel control uh, extending our dynamic text capabilities, especially with like international um, clients that have an international storefront. We're kind of developing a piece that can allow for extended dynamic translations for international stores. Um, 
all of that is going to be soft serve technology inside inside our admin. So yeah, it's it's uh, it's exciting. Excellent. All right, thanks for sharing a bit on that. So uh, I'd like to like come back to you here now, and in the context of that, and, and where obviously the technology is going to think about. Um, Roman and, and, and your strategic aims, because I know earlier you said about one of your advice don't just obsess on the day-to-day, think about like where you're going and that operational need. So I'd love to hear a bit about what are the current like, strategic uh, challenges and focuses for you in e-commerce? Like, what, you know, what, are the, what are the key things that you are driving forward? I think um, along with a lot of retailers, we saw quite a bit of growth in e-commerce as we were coming out of the tail end of the pandemic. Well, I say coming out, we're still in this army so, um, Towards the later stages of 2020, we um, we saw some incredible growth. Um, we have decided, you know, we, we decided that it was scalability that was more necessary than anything else. So we invested in a lot more equipment. We invested in a lot more uh, racking space and et cetera, et cetera. So we could fill the warehouse with more stock and we could fill the warehouse with more staff. Obviously, as safely as possible. So we've got more guns. We've got more scanners. We've got more training going on. Um, of course, with our offering, it, what's been very important to us is making sure that our relationship with the delivery partners is as strong as it can be. So we're with Royal Mail trialing the Sunday deliveries and we're there trialing the, the midnight collections, et cetera, so we can ensure that we have a consistent service across all of our departments. Um, for, well, for every customer in the UK, we we rely on an almost weekly to bi-weekly as, as as brad has mentioned release schedule from remarkable so that we're we're not just conducting vanity projects to improve the color of buttons etc etc you know we're, we're working on some really meaty projects um that will speed up picking to improve the packing situation to improve returns which is often the overlooked element of e-commerce um we're really scaling with the operation so from where we were this year versus last year of course we're we're going to be doing better but where we were on 2019's numbers which is the numbers that we're going against we're up significantly but we're still the same building so we have to do more not with less but we have to do more with the same and that's what's going to be the biggest challenge for us this year and, and to quite overcome that it will be efficiency it will be improving the speed the resilience and the amount of man hours that we can dedicate to more efficient ways of doing every job. So that's why 2021 has all been about operational consistency, improving our delivery offering, improving what we can do infrastructurally with the framework that uh, Remarkable has been able to set up and being able to, to adapt our servers and, uh, and really scale what we're doing there in terms of hardware capacity. And we've only just very recently um, improved what we're doing with some of our uh, some of our memory storage as well, improving what we can do there. So that we're, we have less amount of downtime when it comes to processing a large amount of orders. And there's been problems. There will always be problems, um, but solved very quickly and, and and organized in a way that means that it won't go you won't go wrong again because it's okay to have a problem. But the worst thing is it can happen a second time. Yes. So, you know, that's that's where we've been. The, 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 the challenges have been due to being too successful. So, we're, we, you know, we're, we're quite happy that uh, it's a nice problem to have. But, yeah, the, the, the release schedule has had to adapt um, to a more 
we, we try to in, uh, ensure that we do admin releases on a specific day and we try to make sure we do front-end releases on a specific day to make sure that if anything goes wrong, we can isolate it to a very finite amount of things that went live in a particular period. So there will always be two or three projects which are, are launching every two weeks, um, all of them with a, with a benefit. Everything is measured and everything is made sure that it works. So if there's no goal and there's no hypothesis, then why are we working on it? It's... Um, it's yep. It's those challenges that we 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 you know we consistently try to 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 well, to crush, <laughs> and I think we are we're doing a really good job of it. I, I think it's really nice to hear a business where where um, and I've, this echoes in in several clients I work with where the focus has been operationally because the you know the growth of online increases demand. Consumers are more focused on service and and getting quality, not just getting stuff cheap. And it's quite it's nice to hear that people are thinking about that because it's about building those longer term relationships and getting that recurring revenue hopefully so uh, interesting um question i had about it, like the performance side of it because uh, brad you talked about um performance and speed we know it's so important it's important not just a conversion rate and google rankings etc but fundamentally to customer experience so how do you in how do you maintain line that because when you're being agile and keep releasing and releasing sometimes i find that teams can lose track of the underlying metrics that, that that measure performance because it's all about releasing new stuff. So how do you make sure performance stays at least consistent or as good as you can be? We've got a couple of um, really good for independent third-party tools that we use to monitor the website. It's not that we, we feel that we need them. It's just we need a base of truth. Uh, everything we do gets released onto a test environment, which goes through significant amounts of testing, then onto a staging environment, and then we leave it on the staging environment for a certain amount of time, and then we may release it to one production server. And from there, we'll measure it on our third-party tools. Uh, we'll try to we'll try to use tools like Sentry and et cetera to make sure we've not made any development mistakes, though those are very minimal. Um, we have to make sure that there's nothing there that could easily go wrong. Performance for us is measured on a highly behavioral, uh, highly behavioral metrics. So we're looking at conversion rate, we're looking at bounce rates, we're looking at exit rates, we're looking at um, items per basket, we're looking at average order value. Are the things that we're making going to impact our business? And one of the three pillars, you know, it's it's one of those things that we have to make sure that we're consistently checking. And if we feel that something has gone backwards. It's not to revert it immediately. It's to adapt and to refine. Everything we do might not make a difference at all. If you were to believe services like Optimizely, Convert, A-B, Tasty, et cetera, et cetera, there's going to be, um, you leave a test on for weeks, it will tell you conclusively that you are going to improve revenue 500% by performance action. You do it and you see nothing. It's just that statistical proof that doesn't that will always point to an answer but that answer doesn't always exist when it comes down to a real world scenario. So we we see everything as part of the journey onto a bigger picture. Just because we've not seen an improvement doesn't mean that we won't get an improvement eventually. It's part of the, the, the overall roadmap approach that we take to development. And performance is a, is a large part of that from, as I say, from the behavioral metrics down to the page speed analysis is. I'm sure remarkable hate, but we sometimes come to them and say, but why is our website 0.2 of a second slower than one of their other clients? But it's 
these challenges exist to make sure that we're always on the best path. And there will be some projects that we've got in the pipeline that we are very keen to do, which will see no benefit to the customer than page speed. Yeah. But it's going to make a big difference. Yeah, I think that's nice. The, the behavioural side and the, the core underlying uh, speed metrics, and the, the two are together. Not, and often you can, you can take a slower performing page but have a better overall customer experience and on-page UX and actually get a, an incremental conversion rate from doing so. So, yeah, you've got to balance it. Not, yeah, nice advice. Um, I'd love to talk a bit about personalization um, uh, before we finish up because personalization is it's talked about everywhere. People are obsessed with it about, you know, this is the way that you differentiate. This is the way that you keep people coming back. But how important is personalization at the moment to the, the e-commerce strategy? At the moment, it depends on what level of personalization we're talking. True one-to-one personalization, I don't think many people are doing it well at all. Um, we're talking explicitly a customer telling you that they're interested in something. And I think that as retailers, we're always keen on telling people what they want and not listening to them. So we're looking at wish list data. We're looking at surveys. We're looking at true engagement metrics to say, what are you more interested in? And we're going to be building a a bit of a personalization program around that. At the moment, we're probably too much geared towards our first-party data. So it's the abandoned baskets and the part recoveries and the abandoned browsers, and we're we're assuming interest. Um, So where it comes to true one-to-one personalization, I think we've all got a, a real long way to go. But we are getting there. As I say, we are using some of our additional sources of truth on the website to make sure we're providing accurate, relevant personalization. However, we're not really doing it on a front end at the moment. We've got some limitations there that we're aware of. Um, it's that it's that basis of knowing that you've got thousands and thousands and thousands of people visiting your website on a daily basis. Not all of them can have a personalized result and still end up with the same experience. So. Do we impact site performance for everybody, but everybody's got a tailored experience? Or do we accept that there's going to be a certain amount of segmentation there and everybody has a good experience on the website and site performance isn't affected? I don't think that JavaScript um, integration at the moment is really uh, fast enough for that true one-to-one at the moment with the data endpoints that we've got. And well, data silos being a completely separate issue, there's lots of... There's lots of talk about true one-to-one, but I think the only way that we're currently seeing that is through email um, and other marketing channels. But on-site personalization, I think, still has a way to go. Um, So I think we're using a lot of data and we're pairing a lot of really smart decisions with our uh, marketing suite, and that's what's driving a lot of people back to us. And I think with the changing of the seasons because obviously fashion is a highly uh, seasonal is highly affected by season highly affected by trend highly affected by what's going on in the world but we're able to make faster decisions when we're acting on the cloud um the, the cloud decide the hive mind of the customer um we are waiting for that customer to tell us they are now interested in occasion where because assuming other customers are now interested in occasion where then it's important for us to start putting that in front of the person. Otherwise we would assume that somebody who bought last year uh, loungewear would still be in it this year because they've yet to come back and tell us that they are interested in something different. And I think that's where we're 
we need to be smart and you need to control the machine learning element and the AI elements of everything that you're doing. Um, the merchandising of the product would go crazy if you tried to input any of the last 12 months of data into it. It wouldn't understand what's going on. Well, does any of us really? But I think that's what's that's what you need. You need to make sure that you're controlling all of these pieces of technology there to personalize, but not to act too granularly. Thanks. So thanks. In, interesting perspective on that. Yeah. Um, I, I guess I, I, to to flip that to you, Brad. I'd, I'd love to hear the um, from a rock point of view. Like, what what are the personalization capabilities? Whether it is segment segmentation based or one to one within the platform. So we had um, we had a retailer come to us a few years ago, and they had two hundred MVT tests running simultaneously, and. This really opened our eyes to how personalization can go really wrong because a lot of those tests are actually conflicting with each other. So we we discovered that what they were th- what they thought they were learning was actually the complete opposite of what was actually happening. So um, that was a kind of insight into an early insight for us into what personalization um, challenges that you know retailers have. A lot of retailers, like Ian said. Uh, very early in personalization we have a we have literally like maybe 20 percent of our clients um of our client base are, are doing personalization in some way which is a tiny number you know when you think about how personalization has come on over the past few years um so in the, in the platform we've we've developed the kind of fundamentals around a personalization engine um there were a lot of that foundation is based on our B2B experience, to be honest with you. So, you know, in the B2B space, you do have that one-to-one personalization. You know, you have elements like custom price lists and personalized content, personalized promotions. All of that stuff is is really the kind of rudimental stuff around personalization. Um, and I think personalization only comes good when you've got really good tracking. I think to Ian's point around you know data silos and um, having enough data to understand what's happening and having enough relevant data as well, it all comes back to good tracking. So that's what our that's what our focus is at the moment is, and that's the prerequisite really to personalization. It's it's our own piece of tracking uh, technology. So that's what our focus is. Um, so current capabilities is quite low, but. Yeah, something that we're we're really focused on, um, and we'll be coming along in the next year or two. Okay, thanks hey, so for that. For me, this is this most important thing with technology. It's the honesty about where you are and, and what's the current strength and where it might be in the future. But you're right; I mean, data is critical. To it. So, yeah, interesting. Um, well, that brings me. You'll be glad to hear it brings me to the end of my annoying questions, gents. So, um, hope I'm traumatised you too much on a Wednesday morning. <laughs> Thank you very much, James. Really appreciate. It. No, it's been fantastic. Thank you very much, James. Ian, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day. Lovely to hear about the story about Rome and not just the dress, but I'm still fascinated by that, but but also where you're going and, and you know, how you're strategically thinking. Really enjoyed that. And Brad, yeah, great to chat again and, and thanks for sharing a few insights on the platform. So um, and for all those people who have watched or listened, thanks as always for joy, tuning into the podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it. Um, If you've got any questions, do show and do keep your ears tuned for the next episode and do subscribe if you haven't already. Thank you very much.
For more information on this topic, head over to replatform.fm for our audio podcasts. To discuss a project, or if you'd like to chat about any of the topics covered in this episode in more detail, please reach out to myself, James Gerd, or my co-host, Paul Rogers, via LinkedIn and Twitter. Thanks again for listening, and keep your ears peeled for the next episode.